night's thought. I should have skipped the preach and just gone to the beach. This thought just occurred to me this week. Yeah, I never thought about this before. That uh, when I was a teenager, I always used to go on these uh, mission trips uh, with my church. And I hated them so much. I never looked forward to them. I dreaded them. And uh, this, of course, made me different than a lot of other uh, kids I grew up with because uh, just they would go to the beach, you know, for any reason in the world. They, they, uh, you could tell them that they would uh, be cleaning oil off of geese for three days. I mean, if it meant that they got to go to the beach, you know, they loved it. Um, you could tell them that they would be swimming in oil after the Gulf oil spill. And they would still go to the beach. They would love going to the beach. And I, I just never, I never liked it because of the circumstances, because of the context, uh, you know, of the beach trip. And uh, the circumstances, like the catch of going to the beach with my church was that uh, you would actually spend very little time at the beach laying, laying on the sand or uh, getting a suntan or swimming in the ocean. Uh, what would really happen was that you would spend most of the time in uh, the conference room of the Holiday Inn where you were staying uh, with about 40 other people your age, you know, like reading the Bible and uh, praying. And, you know, like it just occurred to me this week that uh, I wasn't obligated to stay in there. I mean, I guess technically I was, sure, because the uh, youth group pastor and, uh, you know, his posse, they they were all in charge of me. But uh, there were 40 other kids there. I could have snuck out. Nobody ever would have noticed me. I could have I could have just skipped the preach and gone to the beach. from Birmingham, Alabama. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. Yes, welcome so much. In, thank you so much for joining me here in the studio in Birmingham, Alabama on a Saturday night. I don't know where you are right now, but uh, our realities have synchronized and you are here with me. Thank you so much patching in. Uh, I am live tonight here at the Midnight Citizen Studio. And if you were watching me, if you were joining me live, thank you so much for spending a little bit of your Saturday night with me. I know that they're precious these days. You know, especially if you're, if you work, you've got one of these things a week 
And the time is precious, I know. <laughs> but it means a lot to me. That you're spending some of it with me. So stick around. But I was sitting on the porch uh, this week with my friend Dave. And uh, Dave is a little bit older than I am. And uh, we were discussing this idea of uh, these church mission trips to the beach. And he had had the same experiences uh, as I had a few years earlier with his own church uh, here in Alabama. And he said, you know, I just skipped out of there. I noticed that nobody, nobody cared. Nobody ever noticed me. No, <laughs> if I left, I mean, I would go and uh, just go to the beach and uh, everybody else would be in there like listening to a sermon and reading the Bible and praying. And uh, I was like, I, I, I guess I'm just I, like, I wasn't cool enough to make that realization. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, when I, when I was a kid though, um, Every single uh, year, as the school year would get closer to the to the last day, everybody would be super excited, and I was kind of dreading it because I, in a weird way, liked the routine of coming to school, and I liked the routine of going home from school and, and being in my own world. I liked going into my room and working on my hobbies and... You know, I liked riding my bike around the neighborhood and things like that. And I was very much a loner. There were no other kids uh, on my street that were my age. And so all the other kids, uh, you know, lived in these newer developments and uh, they lived close to each other. So they were used to being around each other all the time. And church was just a natural extension of that. You would go to church on Wednesday nights to Wednesday night youth group. And uh, they would all be there and they would all have inside jokes from their neighborhoods and things like that. And, you know, I would go and I would, I would know some kids there, but in general, I was very much like an alien or something from, uh, from an invading planet. Um, I wasn't exactly welcomed into that culture. And, uh, it was just kind of a given every single year. I never even thought to, uh, to ask my parents otherwise, you know, can I not do this this year? Can I not go to the beach? And, uh, I never thought to ask that. It was just a given that I would, uh, essentially a week or so after school ended, I would, uh, throw a bunch of clothes in like a suitcase and, uh, pile on into a charter bus and head four hours south to like Orange Beach um, at Gulf Shores, uh, Alabama. So, and everybody was really excited about it. It was always so much fun. And uh, I would just, uh, you know, the, 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 the charter bus would be booming and crazy with activity and kids getting up and moving to different seats and uh, kids turning, uh, kind of sitting in the uh, aisles there and playing spades or something like that. And I would be usually in my seat all by myself, just kind of like uh, reading, reading a book or uh, listening to like a Walkman. And, and this was very tough. This is kind of the worst part of it 
is that you were not, since it was a church trip, you weren't allowed to bring any kind of secular music whatsoever. And so this was the mid to late 90s when all these trips were happening to the beach with my church. And so that was a, a weird renaissance of Christian music that had broken into the pop music charts. So there were things like Jars of Clay and there was Creed. And so all the kids had these CDs because it was like they were still listening to rock or pop music, but they could get away with it because it was Christian. But anyway, I was smart enough, I will say. I wasn't smart enough to, to, to just ask my parents, can I not go this year? Can I do something else this summer? But I was smart enough to take my CDs my secular Satan CDs and put them in the sleeves of the, of the Christian CDs. So it would be like a Creed CD, but I would instead have something like a, like a blues traveler or something like that in there. So I would, I was smart enough to do that. <laughs> so and yeah, and, and we would get down there and uh, you know, I would have to, I would, you know, we would have the room assignments and I would usually get roomed with, uh, some other weird outsider there. Generally it was my friend Clayton. Um, Clayton had a stutter and, uh, and I considered Clayton my best friend and, and on these beach trips, he was very much welcome, especially because I got to room with him. I didn't have to get put in a room with all these other weird guys who like made backyard wrestling videos and they would bring their backyard wrestling videos and like a VCR that they could hook up to the, um, to the television in their hotel room. I'm telling you, man, that was like a weird, weird time. So it was one of those things where you would go into the hotel room and you would like get settled and then you were supposed to meet in the conference room of the Holiday Inn. Like you maybe could go down to the beach for about 15 minutes. Everybody was allowed to just explore a little bit. Like it was really technically time that you were supposed to be unpacking and everything. But really it's like everybody just went into their rooms, threw their suitcases down and then ran out to the beach. And, uh, and then we had to be in the conference room and immediately we were all circling up and there was our, there was our youth pastor. Our youth pastor was named brother Eddie and everybody in the Southern Baptist church for some reason, you know, like all the men are named brother uh, the women are not named anything. You you don't call them sister or anything. You just, you know, whatever. But the men are called brother, you know, and you got brother Eddie. And brother Eddie is there, and, and, and he's... I Listen, I am not changing the names, by the way. This is an actual guy. And I'm not knocking the guy or anything like that. I'm sure, like, now as a teacher and an adult myself, um, I see where he was coming from a lot of the times because he was responsible. He was liable if we got hurt. Um, he was responsible and liable if, uh, two of the, uh, two of the kids, you know, a guy and a girl snuck off and, 
you know, decided to uh, get a little bit of extra biology credit. Uh, bro- Brother Eddie, it was all on him. But that being said, though, the guy was a bit of a of, of an ass. <laughs> well, you know, he wasn't a nice guy most of the time, honestly, especially not to me. And there was always this uh, rumor going around that, you know, Brother Eddie wasn't really a rumor. It was a belief that Brother, Brother Eddie played favorites. You know, he had the guys that he really liked. Um, the guys that would always put on the drama skits at Wednesday night youth group and, and, you know, the guys who would, um, the guys who were really, you know, usually very popular at schools, the jocks and things like that, you know, all the, all the clicks, all the, all the stereotypes, the stereotypical cool guys, you know, brother Eddie liked. And then the guys who fell under the radar, who, whose voices weren't very loud, who didn't necessarily volunteer for anything, or get asked to do anything. Guys like me, Brother Eddie not only avoided us most of the time, but the only time he ever paid any attention to guys like me were when we did something wrong. And um, the summer after this one beach trip that I particularly remember when I went to Manitowoc, Wisconsin on a mission trip, uh, we had to go up there and like... uh, renovate like an old church or something like that. I had to room with this guy named Andy Wald, who was another outsider, but Andy Wald def, def like he desperately wanted to be on the inside. So I got, I got put in a room with him, and Andy was keeping me up all night long, trying to talk to me, like get information out of me, like which girls do you like, you know, and things like that. And I eventually like kind of went off on him <laughs> <laughs> and I was very loud. And uh, sure enough, it it woke the whole dorm up and Brother Eddie just like, we just hear his heavy, heavy footsteps and breathing because he was a fairly overweight guy. You know, like coming down the corridor and like just slamming into our room and just giving us like a 30 minute lecture about how we need to be responsible, mature adults. And, you know, like we're 14 and uh and then i distinctly remember him saying like now are we done or do you guys need me to kiss you and tuck you in bed and he said this in front of everybody i remember there were even girls watching you know and it really did shame me and andy for the rest of the trip (laughs) but you know just essentially the thing with like brother eddie you know is like essentially everything that you know he did I now try not to do as a teacher so in that regard I guess he was a very good teacher (laughs) so so yeah he was a real alpha male and he would gather us around in a circle there in that basement conference room of the Holiday Inn at Orange Beach, Alabama and uh, make us all pray like pray for you know like we come to you O Lord to bless this trip and brother God I just want to make sure you look after us and teach us how to teach the kids here how to grow their young minds and, and mature them in your image and you know, there was all this like lingo that just to me, it's like, we've got this wonderful beach outside and we're sitting in here holding hands and getting all emotional. It just seemed weird. 
but at the same time, by eighth grade, I had become used to it. It was just a normal, it was uh, business as usual. So, and, uh, you know, the, the, the days were essentially filled with just going out. Um, we would kind of do a fun act. We would usually meet every single morning for breakfast, like a continental breakfast at the Holiday Inn. And then we would go out, we would do some activity. We would go to the beach Yes, we would go to the beach or we would go to like, uh, there was like a water park there. We would go to the water park. Yes. And yeah, I have to admit I had fun, but we would always come back to that conference room every single night. It's like you couldn't have fun because you knew that this like church meeting was just around the corner and you would go in there. And once again, we would all get together in a big circle. And then we would hear brother Eddie walk around us with the Bible in his hand you know, preaching about some kind of uh, parable from the Bible and how this beach trip reminds him of Jesus or something. And uh, and then we would break into the smaller groups. And the smaller groups were essentially like we were made to be like the breakfast club or something. You know, we, we would break out into our smaller groups of uh, boys and girls and individual grades. And, uh, and that was actually kind of nice because you got to talk to girls that you'd never really got to talk to before, you know, who would always run in the other crowds. And suddenly you, you're given this voice. We all had to go around in a circle and kind of share. And so I think honestly, looking back on it now, I may have believed it as my 14 year old self, you know, just kind of wanting to, you know, being in the moment and uh, having that thing where you do, buy into the experience that you are trying to build a closer relationship to Christ. You know, I, I don't want to sound like I was not genuine about any of it. When I was 14, I did have this certain mission in my head that like, because it was business as usual. I did this every single year that like, I, 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 I do believe in God and I do believe in Jesus Christ, his son. And I do want to have some kind of a relationship with them. And I was not a cynic about it. Um, but I just, you know, when you're 14, you just want to be doing anything else than talking seriously, especially at the beach with a bunch of people about God. But we go around and the girls are like getting super emotional and they seem to be like tearing up when some of the guys are talking. So I guess I do too. Talk about building a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we all come back together as a large group, you know, and we, you know, brother Eddie asked anybody to share, to stand up and share anything that we talked about in the group and everything. And, um, I do remember there was this, uh, very adamant and, uh, just excitable church mom there. Um, and I can't remember her name now, but I just remember that like any time brother Eddie would ask anybody from the crowd to stand up and speak, she would stand up and speak and she would in turn give her own 10 or 15 minute lecture. And brother Eddie would not like cut her off. I always got the feeling he was intimidated by her a little bit. I don't know. Like she had like the ear of the church pastor overall, who was his boss or something. I don't know. But she would always stand up and she would always, her lectures would always start out really chipper and happy and in uh, good natured. And then they would essentially very slowly decline into fire and brimstone by the end of her speech. 
And uh, she stands up, I remember, and this is in the summer of 1996. Um, and she stands up and starts talking about how, I just want to say that it's just so great to be here. It's just such a great challenge that God has put forth to me to come here and just work with all you wonderful young people. And um, I just, I think that right now God is really challenging y'all because we live in such a, such a dangerous and such a dark time. And, and I'll give you an example that last summer I went, I went to the theater. You can't even go to the theater anymore and just have a fun family time with your family. You, you sit in that theater now. And last summer I was sitting there watching this awful movie, Apollo 13. And uh, I'm sitting next to her just hearing this like Apollo 13. That movie was awesome. And uh, she goes on, she says in Apollo 13, just I, they can't they can't get through five minutes of, of, of a movie there without them seeing GD this or JC that or D this or S that or H that. <laughs> and uh, and I'm sitting there like uh this this woman's insane. I mean, it was a good movie. I mean, you know, it's like I would probably say if my spaceship was marooned in outer space and I didn't get to walk on the moon like I wanted to and everything, and I didn't know if I was going to ever see my family again, I'd probably be like letting out some uh, curse words then, uh, you know, there as well. And she went on, she says, and that night I just went home with my husband and my two sons and we sat there on the back porch and we drank iced tea and we just prayed for God to forgive us for what we had just done of seeing Apollo 13. <laughs> so. You know, but I just think all the rhetoric and uh, just being in that room, it was almost like a sensory deprivation tank, really. It's just like being in that room... And it was so cold. Being in that room, that cold room for so long, you just felt like you were um, eventually, like, given over to it. And I have to admit, after three days of three and four hour sessions, I gave myself over to God. That's when I asked him to come into my heart. And there was this immediate change because I remember going up into my hotel room that night and um, everybody else had gone out to the beach and Clayton went out to the beach with him. And I was sitting there alone in my apartment, in my, uh, in my hotel room. And I pulled out the book that I had been reading. It was John Grisham's the Pelican brief. Cause I I'd seen the movie and I liked John Grisham books and this was the mid nineties and they were everywhere. And everybody was reading them. It was a really big deal to read a John Grisham paperback. And I was opening it up and I was seeing GD this and JC that and H this and B that. <laughs> and uh, I felt disgusted with myself and I threw it into my suitcase and I didn't open it up again until I was in college. And I finally began to realize how you know, utterly brainwashed, I'd become quite honestly indoctrinated, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is, it is kind of amazing that, um, 
even the the innocuous things and and i think about this now with my students because i taught summer camp this week and i taught students who are younger than the ones i'm used to teaching i usually teach high school students but i worked with some middle school students this week and you know, I, I read this uh, Edgar Allan Poe story with them, and much to my surprise, some of the kids were kind of freaking out about it. And they said, like, oh, I can't watch scary stuff. I can't read scary stuff. Ah! And um, I had sympathy for them because I know exactly what it's like when you're a kid. You know, it's like every every bit of your identity is kind of tied up in what adults tell you you are. And in this case, at the Holiday Inn... I was told that I was just like a filthy sinner, I guess. And I, again, I don't want to be like, I'm very cynical, yes, toward the church. But just because of the way that it was, you know, uh, and, and I don't know what it's like now. I don't know if they're still doing this stuff now. But there was this particular just drive in the 1990s, you know, before everything became so politic politicized. Um, this was kind of the precursor of it. When everything was under question, everything was suspect in the eyes of the of the uh, Southern Baptist Church. So, oh man! And then the last night—I'll never forget the last night—they brought us down. To the room for one last prayer meeting and this time they broke us up into smaller groups but they they didn't break them up into the grades they broke them up into the guys and the girls and the girls went into one room and the guys went into another and uh, brother eddie comes in there and starts talking to us about sex And he starts bringing in these weird things, like these weird rants about like how, you know, the guys are all arrogant and cocky all the time. And he's like, I see you guys walking around and, you know, you acknowledge each other by like tilting your heads up into the air and like, you know, just going like, what's up, you know? And he says, that's just arrogance and that's sin speaking. And you bring that to your relationships with women. And, uh... We were, I, I was, I'm still confused by that to that this day. I don't really know what he was talking about. Um, but it was, it was weird because I had never had the sex talk with my parents and you always think that that's kind of a job that your parents have, but, um, oddly the church, and I really think this probably started in maybe the eighties or maybe seventies, the church kind of started to, uh, co-opt and assume the responsibilities that generally the parents wanted, you know, the church kind of started to talk and, you know, step in there and talk about sex from like a spiritual perspective. And, you know, I don't know if it had anything to do with like the abortion debate. I don't know. I'm sure it did. But, you know, I'm sitting here now, and, uh, you know, it's about 25 years or so after that trip to Orange Beach with my uh, with my church youth group. 
And I was just thinking about the idea of like, you know, why didn't I just get up and go? Why didn't I have a little bit of agency to get up and go? Because now that's what I, I would have done. If anybody tries to sit me down in a room and just tell me you can have the beach, but you got to sit through this presentation first, excuse me. And I would get up and go and, but, but, uh, you know, I was just in there with a lot of people who were just doing the same exact thing as I was, you know, sitting in their seats and just kind of waiting and biding their time for it to be over. And eventually some of them would just give into it, this sensory deprivation tank and just be like, okay, I give myself over to Christ. If it'll just get me out of here. Essentially the same people who went on these mission trips to the beach when they were kids, they're the same people who grew up now to, uh, to buy timeshares, I think. I don't know. <laughs> That's my theory anyway. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight at the Midnight Citizen Show. I've got more to talk about tonight. I'm going to play some music, and I'll be back in just a minute. Stick around.
right, welcome back into the studio. Hope you enjoyed that music break. First song you heard there was by a band called Artificial Intelligence. The song was called Suddenly It Occurs to Me There's No Ocean Here. Very surf rock and I think appropriate for the story we just told, even though there was no surfing. And the last song you heard was Transcontinental Superconscious State by the band The Space Merchants. And I got uh, Paul listening on the live stream telling me that it uh, sounded a lot like the Pixies. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's actually why I picked them. So I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> Very much uh, Kim Deal-esque. Thank you. Uh, so while I've got your ear, I just want to state uh, a couple things. Uh, yes, I am live tonight, by the way, but uh, if you're not watching live, uh, you know, you don't have to sweat it. I am uh, posting this live stream on demand on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Mike Booty. So you can watch later on at your uh, at your heart's content. Check out a link in the uh, show notes. But if you don't have show notes, you once again, youtube.com slash Mike Booty. Uh, you can see a uh, past live stream there, uh, streams there as well. I took one of those Delta eight gummies earlier today and I feel like it's just really messing up with my speech and I don't know, maybe I'm just dehydrated. I don't know. Uh, it definitely knocked me out for a good long time today. Um, and I want to thank Alex, uh, for turning me on to those. He is also watching on the live stream tonight. Um, but yeah, I am also over at a uh, mikemoody.com slash the midnight citizen. That is my website where you can find uh, this show as well as all of my past uh, shows. You can find the archive going all the way back to 2011. Um, it's just a wonderful amount of entertainment that is totally free. Yes. And I'm also available to download on Apple, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Anywhere you get your podcast, please join me. Thank you so much. Um, and yeah, stick around. We still got some more stuff. Um, I do have a, a special gift if you are listening right now. Um, I am going to do a toast. I usually like doing a little whiskey toast um, around this time, just as we come in from the music break. Um, last week, I did a toast to the actor Ned Beatty, who passed away at age 82. Usually, I do a toast to dead actors. But uh, as far as I know, no no major celebrities died this week, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure somebody died this week. Um, but no, we're, we're not even going to worry about that. So I've got some Woodford Reserve here. Woodford Reserve, 45.2% uh, alcohol by volume, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. I don't drink Woodford Reserve that much, but uh, yeah, what the hey. I just finished summer camp, so uh, teaching and... Uh, <laughs> I just want to, uh, if you're, if you're watching live, please drink a toast to the midnight citizen show 
and a great rest of the show. Thank you so much. I'll tell you what I should actually do tonight. I should, I should drink a toast to my friend Dave, okay? So, like, you may have heard... On my, uh, on that, the story that I told just now, it was really inspired. As a matter of fact, the, um, tonight's thought was actually directly inspired by Dave. Um, you know, and, and Dave came up with this line that he said he always used to throw around with his friends and youth group, skip the preach and go to the beach. And I just thought that was so great. What a great line. And, uh, Dave, honestly, uh, every time I hang out with him on the porch and we, you know, we drink whiskey and all that, we have cigars. Uh, Dave usually says something that really does directly inspire, um, a podcast topic. And I usually talk to him with like a notebook in my hand because I just know that, uh, I'm always going to hit on a conversation topic, but I do mention Dave quite a lot on the show and I have interviewed him on the, in the past, but it just occurred to me that uh, Dave is kind of like, uh, I don't know, one of those like off-camera characters. Um, you know, like um, Vern. You know, like how, how Ernest would always be like, Hey, Vern! Hey, Vern! Like Dave is kind of like, uh, to me, to my show, The Midnight Citizen, like Vern was to Ernest, you know? Um, <laughs> I think that's a compliment. I don't know. Or he's like the, uh, the the woman who answers the phone in the Andy Griffith show. You know, you never see her. I think her name was like Clara or Sarah. Hey, Sarah, get me the Bluebird Diner. Get, get me. The, you know, he's kind of like that. All these uh, great sitcoms have like off-camera characters who are integral to the plot. So, yeah, I'll drink a toast to Dave. All right, now. (coughs) (laughs) So, this has been a wonderful weekend, I gotta say, because uh, I just finished three weeks of uh, absolute mind-boggling anxiety um teaching summer camp my youngest campers were first graders my oldest campers were ninth graders and so it was quite a it was quite a feat and um i honestly think i i think i say this every single year i'm never teaching summer camp ever again not that it's like a miserable experience or anything but you know as a teacher you do want you need those two and a half months and uh, summer camps come up, and, and summer camp was never really something that I did that much of when I was a kid. Um, but now, they really are loading kids down with something to do every single week between the time they get out of school in May and start school in, in mid-August. Uh, th- these kids have everything. I mean, just ask my niece. I mean, she does, you know, music camp, theater camp, uh, I you know... Um, what other camp art camp? I mean, you know, it's like they, they just do them all. And these are not really something that it's not really something that I participated in a whole lot. I did things like I talked about last week, like vacation Bible school, which was like church camp. Once again, I did a boy scout camp, which was sleepaway camp. 
once in the sixth grade. That's all I needed to do. Um, uh, but now it's like I, I just finished teaching three weeks of a summer camp. And uh, boy, boy, I'm I'm exhausted. Honestly, it was tough. It was a tough. Uh, it was a tough go. But uh, there was one weird, you know, interesting silver lining to the whole experience was that uh, one of the camps that I taught uh, was at my school where I work. And I was actually teaching uh, a lot of the counselors there were actually my students, my high school students. And uh, they were following me around and they were helping and all that. And they were drinking their coffee alongside me. And it was odd because they were like for two weeks, uh, my they were my colleagues. They were my coworkers. And uh, it was fascinating to see that because you're used to telling them not to do things, not to run in the halls, not to, you know, talk in class. And all of a sudden you get to see them saying the same exact thing to kids. And, and, and every year that I teach the summer camp, they always say, like, I understand what you're going through now, Mr. B. I get it. I get it. <laughs> and uh, that's fascinating just to watch them do conflict intervention you know uh, there were some kids fighting in my class the other day and one of my kids my counselors just jumped into action he said okay like why don't you tell me your side first now you tell me yours and it was just odd to see them do that it's uh, really interesting Oh, I get it. Sorry, I was looking at the live stream just now, and I saw that Alex was uh, writing in big caps. Got me a podcast, I want you to know. Busting out my eardrums, I want you to know. <laughs> okay, he was referencing a Pixie song. Okay, okay, he was referencing Debaser. All right, I get it now. I'm sorry if the mix is loud, Alex. I apologize. <laughs> uh, I'm slow tonight. I tell you, it's that Delta Gummy. But I did have a very proud moment uh, as a teacher this week. I want you to know. There is this uh, short story that I always enjoy reading um, with kids. It is a short story called... Uh, it's a short story called The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. And uh, you may have read this in middle school. It's a very popular book for young adult uh Readers, it's it's well, it's not a book. It's a short story uh, by Shirley Jackson, and essentially, it is this horror story uh, where a bunch of people get together in the small town and they have a lottery. And you don't really know what the lottery is. You just kind of have an idea that nobody wants to win the lottery. And every time I read it with kids, I always talk to them about the idea of like, you know, what is a lottery? Um, is the lottery something that you would want to win? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, so why don't you think anybody wants to win this lottery? And they say they have no idea. And it gets down to the fact that in the book, in the, in the story, the person who wins the lottery, who draws their slip of everybody in the town, like draws a slip of paper. And there's one slip of paper that has like a black mark on it. And if you open that up, then you win the lottery. And so this woman at the end of the story draws a slip of paper with a black mark on it, and then everybody descends on her with stones, and they stone her to death to essentially please the 
farming gods or the agriculture gods. I don't know. Um, but the idea is like it's this pagan ritual. You know, they want to. You know, they they want to make sure that their crop is good, that their harvest is good. And so it's very difficult to read stories with kids, especially at summer camp when it's like you come in, they come in and, and they're very savvy, these kids. On the very first day, you know, they kind of realize that, uh, oh my gosh, this isn't camp, this is school. We have to sit in here and read. Oh my God. So you have to kind of do fun things with them. So, you know, throughout camp, every single day, I would bring them in before we would do anything and I would get them some physical exercise, you know, because research shows that, you know, if you do exercise before you learn something, you're more likely to not only be engaged with what you learn, but you're also more likely to retain the information. Okay. So, so I take them in and I, I have them exercise. We play like a couple of games and, uh, they play dodgeball a lot. They love dodgeball. They love to get these like softballs and just get on either side of the gym and just try and destroy each other with these things, throw them at each other, see if they can get headshots and things like that. I always have to discourage head headshots, but they do them anyway. So whatever. It's a firework outside. You hear that? My gosh, people are already shooting off fireworks. It's the 4th of July is like next week. Oh my God. <laughs> there it is. Okay. So I guess we're going to do this with fireworks in the background. All right. So the kids finish uh, playing dodgeball one day and I bring them back into the, into my classroom and we start reading the lottery and we're talking about the book. I'm going to have to t- close the window. Let's keep going. better um and i paused the story about halfway through because i suddenly noticed heads are going down the kids are not interested at all and i pause the story and i say okay what's happening i just kind of need to take a pulse to make sure the kids are understanding the story and they have no idea what's going on so i have to explain it to them and at the uh, end of my explanation i i hear what no teacher ever wants to hear, you know, a kid like looks, has their hand up and you think that they have something to say, something interesting, like a great insight. And then the girl just says, uh, can we play dodgeball now? The exact thing you don't want to hear. Right. And so they continue to read the story and, you know, the end of the story comes and, you know, the heads continue to stay down through it. And it's got this like really dynamic, interesting ending where, uh, you essentially have to put the pieces together. Shirley Jackson doesn't just come out and say, and then the townspeople throw the stones at the woman and she dies. Right. You know, it's like the end of the story says, you know, the first stone hit her head and then they were upon her. So you kind of have to put it together and the kids just did not get it. They didn't understand it. And I explain it to them. And then another hand goes up and I'm like, okay, great insight. And they say, can we play dodgeball now? (laughs) But, you know, in my head, suddenly, like, a light goes off. How can I get them to retain this information? So I have them draw strips of paper. And the paper goes around, and eventually this one kid draws it. And thank God, it's like the loudest kid in class, one of the kids who asked me if we could, if they could play dodgeball. And so I have all the kids, except him, go down to the gym, pick up dodgeballs, and get in a big circle 
And then, by now they know what's going on. I walk them down. I walk this kid down the long hallway, down the corridor, down the green mile, into the gym. As he goes into the gym, all the kids are standing in a circle with the dodgeballs and they're clapping. (laughs) And then they were upon him. It's my way of teaching the lottery by Shirley Jackson. I got the kids to stone a kid to death. And now they they want to do it every single day. They can't stop talking about the lottery by Shirley Jackson. <laughs> All right. So I think what we're going to do now, yes, is we will go down and take a trip to that lovely video store down the block, the Video Street Video Store. Check out some new stock that they have. Hopefully uh, this uh, these fireworks will play out in that time. And yeah, I will be right back in just a moment. This is the Midnight Citizen. Thank you for joining me. And drag it down to copy, then paste. So trippy. Let's rename it. We wish you a Perry Christmas. I like it. That name is longer than eight dot three characters. Now, for a lot of people, this feature alone is worth the price of admission to Windows 95. Oh, gosh! Well, we don't have any CDs or flappies. I believe that's called floppies. That's what I said. You said flappies. I did not. Okay, you were there. You heard her say flappies, so I'm not crazy. Let's look at buttons. Oh, do, do, poo, poo. I guess you are here for some Windows 95 interface therapy. No, no, I don't think my HMO covers that. Hey, listen to the man. He's got a zen spin on Windows 95. It's kind of like an an interactive fortune cookie, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would. You ever try any right-clicking? Well, there was some peer pressure back when I was a freshman. Create a shortcut. Oh, no, there are no shortcuts in this world. There's a very, very long, long road. Not in Windows. Consider Windows Explorer, the file manager on steroids. We are rocking the desktop. Look, it it moves. Now let's really get crazy. Now dial up American 60s and hit display. Oh, psychedelic. People, we have an announcement. Stay away from the brown floppies. With Windows 95, you can pretty much impose your will on your PC and the world. It's Joystick Johnny. Where's Gates? What is a uh, Joystick Johnny? Most feared video game warrior in the territory. He's probably heard that the new multimedia support in Windows 95 makes games fast and cool. And of course, Windows 95 is compatible with DOS games like Flight Simulator. That's yesterday's news to Johnny. Yeah, well, nobody's leaving until somebody's man enough to play a little 3D pinball with old Joystick Johnny. Okay, Junior, you're on. A girl. So, uh, what's uh, 3D pinball? You mean you've never played that? Oh, Oh, my God. Target achieved. Isn't that what the kids say? You're on my list, Missy. Tim, you brought the band. I did? Oh, wow, I thought I was being stalked. You guys bring your video? Totally digital. Ooh, but on a CD, though, how can we play it? You could use Windows 95. Want a neck? 
Oh. You know, I'll tell you something, I've learned so much, I feel like I've already been a part of the Windows 95 video. Yeah, I know, it's an incredible program, isn't it? Yeah, and the best thing is, we've met some incredibly freakish and frightening people. But you know what I think I'm gonna do? What? I think I'm gonna press that red button. Really? Uh-huh. Windows. I know Windows. Hey, oh, wow. I told you people to stay away from the brown floppies. I mean, you pressed a button and people got zapped into the computer. What do we do? Leave. Task. And now, a New Year's news flash. 1997 is almost here. And once again, Nickelodeon wants to hear your New Year's resolution. So, ride to me, stick, stickly, P.O. Box 963, New York City, New York State, 10108. Write Nick 97 on the envelope and include your name, age, and your resolution. Like if you're going to try and quit hogging the cookies or learn to juggle your eyeballs, then tune into Nickelodeon. Because all during January, I'll be reading resolutions on the air. And you just might hear yours. Ha! Happy New Year. Uh, guys, could you make a resolution to keep the lights on? Good afternoon, ILM. With principal photography on Forrest Gump now complete, the ILM team members return to their Northern California home. Here, they will complete the Oval Office scene between Tom Hanks and JFK. We have to remove uh, this woman, whoever she is, in the white dress and replace Tom where she is. And what's got me concerned is as she comes in front of Kennedy, she's blocking so much of him that uh, we, I don't know how we're going to replace Tom in there without still seeing her. The effects team must first extract Kennedy from the archival shot. The first step is to rotoscope the president's image in each of the scene's 465 frames. Tom Hanks' image must also be extracted. This process is much easier, as the blue screen background isolates his image photographically, eliminating the need for the time-consuming rotoscope process. Next, Hanks and Kennedy must be integrated into a shot of the Oval Office background. So we've got probably pieces of film taken from years, years apart, trying to match them all and still make them look like the same moment in, uh, in history which never took place. Ken Ralston works with computer graphics supervisor George Murphy on the daunting task of getting Hanks and Kennedy to shake hands. My biggest concern is that we need to really paint out the way that thumb sticks up in the air and make the fingers wrap around. So Kerry's going to paint JFK's thumb over Tom's hand so it looks like they're actually holding right, each other's Right, he'll paint it back through so it comes through and then try to make his fingers wrap back around, morph those. We had to basically glue their hands together with the use of the computer by manipulating the positions of the arm and, and the hand positions and painting like JFK's thumb on top of Tom's hands like they were clasping. While the handshake is completed successfully, the scene's most difficult shot requires Kennedy to speak dialogue written by a screenwriter instead of a speechwriter. I believe he said he had to go pee. Unfortunately, the plan to use the mouth movements of the Kennedy stand-in for this shot proved to be impossible. The bathroom is there. We realized it wouldn't work, that it made them look completely different when we took these guys' mouths, even though they were pretty good look-alikes, and put it onto any one of these historical figures that changed their looks completely. 
The effects team determines that the lip-sync shots for the presidents can be achieved only one way, by digitally manipulating their mouths frame by frame. I think part of it is, I mean, once I painted a new lip position, and once we see the inside of his mouth, it'll really help make that real very distinct. This assignment is given to effects art director Doug Chang, whose masterful work on Death Becomes Her won him an Academy Award in 1993. I volunteered to do it because it was kind of a new process and I, I like the challenge of trying to do something new even though there was a high risk of failure. I decided to take some pictures for um, lip reference so that I can see what each lip position is doing at each vowel and consonant and then I use them as just visual reference while I'm animating. I have a question for you as far as his teeth. I've introduced a little bit of his teeth in the bottom right in here. I want to see if that's okay with you or if you think that's a little too that's much. A great smile. Using his reference materials, Chang targets key frames which convey the extreme mouth positions needed to make each sound. He is able to digitally maneuver the lips, cheeks, tongue, and chin with computer-generated handles called splines. I go through and I, I determine my key frames here based on the timing sheet that I, I did of the soundtrack. So I, I've broken it down to major syllables and I've sort of animated these splines accordingly set on these key frames. Yeah, I By using the digital transformation process known as morphing, Chang has the computer generate all of the in-between frames. The nice thing is there's some nice uh, cheek movement which is really helping the shot. The type of morph that we're doing here is actually a little bit more subtle in that we're changing specific features on a person. We're taking just the one image and slightly altering it, changing the movement of that one image. Remember, he will be 80 feet tall and 200 feet wide at the big screen. For the scene to hold up to big screen scrutiny, the mouth morphs must be carefully married with the new and archival footage. The result is an unforgettable fictional moment in history. Congratulations. How do you feel? I got it. Hey. With the Kennedy scene finally complete, along with similar sequences featuring Presidents Johnson and Nixon, the ILM team has successfully placed Tom Hanks in three distinct American eras. It's brand new, very modern. Now you know the secret. Of course, you can't do it, but you know the secret. These presidential scenes contain just a few of the 120 special effect shots hidden in Forrest Gump. Surprisingly, while the digital dinosaurs in Jurassic Park filled the screen for a mere six minutes, Gump's subtler effects are on screen more than four times as long. In the end, 150 of ILM's digital artists logged more than 50,000 hours to complete the film. It was a great experience overall, and I think uh, we expanded the palette that directors can use on, on films in a lot of ways. Despite ILM's success at combining new and old footage, some will question the practice, claiming image manipulation techniques could be used less innocently than they were on Forrest Gump. Really, photography's never been proof of anything. We've all just sort of wanted to accept that with Forrest Gump, I think we've taken it down another step to say, well, unless you know the history of a piece of, of an image, you don't know if it's real. In Hollywood, it's what people think is real that counts. And thanks to digital technology, it's increasingly easier for effects artists to fool audiences. Whether it's the folks at R. Greenberg bringing back an old friend, 
the team from Dream Quest creating a posthumous curtain call, or the wizards from ILM rewriting American history. Hollywood's top effects artists are always happy to provide a blast from the past. Hey. <laughs> I believe he said he had to go pee. <laughs> Fireworks finally stopped. Yeah, I just went down there and I told them, hey guys, I'm doing a podcast. Can you stop? And they're like, yeah, sure. Oh my God, we had no idea. <laughs> Welcome back into the uh, Midnight Citizen studio here. Hope you enjoyed that trip to the Video Street Video Store just now. We had some uh, good music there. Good music. Good videos. Excuse me. Yeah, we had uh, one of my favorites. Uh, the uh, This is just a clip. It was not the whole thing. It was a Windows 95 instruction video starring Matthew Perry and uh, Jennifer Aniston. Obviously, that was from, I guess, 1995. Um. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. I will uh, post a link to it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, it's just a it's, a, it's a blast from the past. It's a testament to how powerful and how, uh, how much, how popular Windows 95 was that uh, they could get uh, two stars from like the biggest show on television at the time. I'm surprised they didn't get like Michael Richards and Julia Louis-Dreyfus or something. Um, but... You know, one of the reasons I love that show so much is that it, it's weird. It um, certainly makes me appreciate, in a weird way, how how far we've come with technology. But also, it makes me lament what the internet is now. Because, obviously, it had such promise back in the 90s. The idea that you could go on and create your own website and have your own domain and you could just email people all day long. And uh, there was, like, this great innocence to it that very, very quickly uh, eroded. (laughs) Um, But nevertheless, I I just, I think about the idea that I take email for granted. I write emails all day long, and I I obviously receive them all day long, too. And very often not from anybody that I know. It's just all spam. Um, and, uh, but it always makes me count my blessings a little bit that the, uh, that the internet actually did pan out. Um, it may be completely different than how it was back in the day and how it was pitched to us. Um, but, uh, but it did, it turned out to be very helpful and, uh, it's because of the internet that I come to you live tonight. Uh, and then we had a little bit of a stick stickly um, from uh, Nickelodeon. Uh, this would have been the same summer um, as that I was on the uh, church trip at Orange Beach. And uh, 
yeah, then I, I just wanted to come home and watch like Nickelodeon cartoons all day long. And uh, Stick Stickly was kind of like the host. He was like this popsicle stick with googly eyes. And uh, he would come on and do like news and, and uh, monologues, kind of like uh, The Tonight Show. But, you know, he was doing it for kids. And, and it was kind of, a, uh, you know, always fun to watch Stick Stickly in the afternoons because he would, uh, you never really knew what he was going to show. He would do like a wheel where he would actually put himself, you know, because he was a popsicle stick. He would put himself on a pivot and the wheel would spin and uh, you would get like a, a different Nickelodeon show. It might be a cartoon. It might be like, are you afraid of the dark? Or it might be a game show. Uh, you never knew with stick stickly. And that made Nickelodeon always a lot of fun to watch in the 1990s. Um, and then after that, we had um, a clip from uh, another one of my really favorite shows to watch um, back then, which was the show called movie magic. And that was an episode that kind of focused on image manipulation. And that was such a big deal when the movie Forrest Gump came out in 1994. And I think it did win an Academy Award for visual effects. But the idea that they actually took, you know, existing footage of presidents and manipulated their mouths using computer-generated software, you know, to say whatever the screenwriter wanted. And, uh, you know, we were all just awestruck by that. And uh, even the creator, at the end of that, he's very cocky. He's like, now you know the secret. You can't do the secret, but now you know it. <laughs> and uh, now we can all do it. And even the narrator says, you know, some people are skeptical that image manipulation will be used for for good. And now, of course, we have deep fakes and, and all that and image manipulation is something that we do every single day. It's like a part of our normal lives, just as much as, you know, the internet. Well, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always write to me, Mike Booty, P.O. Box. I don't have a P.O. Box. Birmingham, Alabama, Alabama, 35205. You know, before I go tonight, I have to, uh, I will, I, I have to talk about this, okay? So, uh, this is episode number... 227 of the Midnight Citizen Show. 227. I mean, that's that's a lot of shows. 227 shows. Um, and I wasn't even thinking about this until I realized this was episode number 227. Uh, but I... Uh, 227 was the name of a very popular sitcom that I used to watch all the time when I was a little kid back in the 1980s. Uh, 227 was a show um, that, remember Jack A, Jack A, you know, Jack A was the upstairs neighbor, uh, kind of the neighborhood flirt who wore like provocative outfits and things like that. Um, that was Jack A. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this was a show, 227. It was like, um, 
starred Marla Gibbs, and it was not a uh, spinoff of the Jeffersons, I don't think. But Marla Gibbs was obviously, she was the housekeeper on, um, on the Jeffersons, starring Sherman Hemsley. And uh, it says here on the Wikipedia that it was actually based on a play that took place originally in 1950s Chicago, but they updated it to um, present-day Washington, D.C. starred Marla Gibbs as, like, the neighborhood gossip, and, you know, she lives with her husband, and she's got a kid played by uh, Regina King, who Regina King is, uh, she's in a lot of movies now. She's an actress. Uh, I think she was in Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Uh, but the the show was mainly fa- famous for uh, launching um, Jack A <laughs> into stardom. You always tuned in to see what Jack A was going to say this week. Let me see if I can uh, pull up. Do I have a? See if I can. I've got two two seven here. Um, there's no place like home. Okay. Um, I got to look up YouTube. So I thought I had this pulled up already. Um, <laughs> bear with me. Bear with me. Two two seven theme song. Yeah, here it is. Get this ad here. Yeah, that was uh, just one of those uh, random sitcoms that would come on in the 80s. And um, I guess a lot of people liked it. That was like my sister watched it a lot. I think I watched it with her. And uh, it was kind of, you know, just one of those, um, you know, like there's always this, um, there's always trends in television. Like the 1960s, you had like hillbilly uh, sitcoms. Uh, the 1980s and you know, I guess late 70s was kind of the era of the uh, of the black sitcom, um, and you know you had the Cosby Show. Obviously, that was like at the at the forefront. The, the Cosby Show was a huge crossover, you know, between black and white audiences. Like the first sitcom to ever do something like that. Um, but then, of course, you had the Jeffersons, and uh, you had uh, Sanford and Son. Um, you had two, two, seven and, uh, a different world. I remember a different world was a spinoff of the, the Cosby show. And then of course you had fresh prints and, and then there was this channel that came along called UPN and UPN like started basically being like the one, the home for the, for the black sitcoms. You would go to UPN for like Moesha and things like that. 
And uh, I'm going down a rabbit hole here because there were a lot of shows, but most of them were on UPN. And then all the the white sitcoms are on, you know, the ABC and NBC and things like that. Um, so I think you would have like a few here and now, but uh, there mostly it was it was UPN. But like in the 80s, when there were basically three major television networks with which to shop your sitcom on, um, there was great crossover appeal. Uh, for shows like this. Uh, yeah, but here's here's Jack A. Let me show her With some of this. Jesus. Work of art. <laughs> you should be on a pedestal. Excuse me. What is that crazy lady talking about? My nose isn't shining. Neither was mine. Mm, nice dress. Oh. Direct from a new designer, $25,000. Direct from an old boyfriend, three. Oh. Well, your boyfriend was very generous, and obviously so he you. <laughs> well, let's just say I know how to handle a hungry man. I wouldn't be so sure of that if I were you. I know I thought I did. Trouble in Loveland? Oh, no, no. I would never burden you with my personal problems. <laughs> he dumped me. <laughs> he dumped me for somebody else. A cheap Italian chippy named Sandra. <laughs> the very thought of her makes my teeth sweat. I despise her. I hate her. I hate everything about her, especially her name. Sandra, I hate her. <laughs> Color didn't look good on me anyway. Oh, I'm so sorry. My name is Beverly. What's yours? A bunny. <laughs> um, so there was always the uh, there was always the the punchline. That color didn't look good on me anyway. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for joining me here tonight um, on the Midnight Citizen podcast. Once again, reminding you, you can find me at mikebootycom slash the Midnight Citizen. The Midnight Citizen, you can search for it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Also on youtube.com slash mikebooty, where you can watch the live video stream of this episode as long as a lot of previous episodes, and I'm starting to put together clips also. Smaller little sections and moments of the Midnight Citizen show that you can watch if you want. Really, if you're watching the whole show or if you're listening to the whole show, you don't really need that. That's really for people who just, you know, want like a five-minute snippet because that's how everything is now. They need a five-minute, just a little tiny little snippet I don't need to listen to the whole thing, but that's fine. You can watch anyway. Um, also, I'm very excited about the idea that I have, uh, I'm putting together a playlist on my YouTube channel of the video street video store. So every video that you, that you, that you hear on this show, um, you can go to YouTube and watch it in a very long playlist. Just like put it on, 
have it on in the background. It's just ambient, non-intrusive audio and video that will keep you entertained for hours. It will be great. Yeah, so go check it out over at youtube.com slash Mike Booty. And that's it for tonight. Come back next week. I'll be live streaming at 1030 Central Standard Time on Saturday. Um, July, July 3rd. Oh, that's great. I'm going to be dealing with more fireworks then. I'll just go down and tell them to turn it down. I'm doing a podcast. Can you just maybe hold off the fireworks until next year? Well, I'll be doing it then. So just, I, just go somewhere else with the fireworks. I'm sure they'll be understanding. Yeah. Keep your eyes open. <laughs>